0: In this episode of the Cybrary Podcast, we sit down with Vishal Gupta, the global CTO and senior vice president of Unisys, and Stephen Bonner, a partner at NISP Law. Joined by Cybrary's VP of Content and Community, Leif Jackson, they discuss how AI and machine learning are affecting the cybersecurity space. Leif Jackson here, uh, VP of Content and Community over at Cybrary. Excited to have Stephen Bonner here, uh, partner at uh, NSIP Law, and Vishal Gupta, CTO and SVP of Unisys. Uh, Thank you guys for coming. Today we'll talk a little bit about AI, machine learning, big data, uh, some of the trends, some of the skill sets you should be building in the space, um, and then talk a little bit about uh, security uh, within that space and the enablement of your security teams. Thanks.
1: Uh, so I got in the AI space actually uh, 25 years back uh, when I came to the U.S., uh, Dartmouth funded my, um, uh, my thesis and uh, it was uh, funded by U.S. Air Force where uh, I actually had created a search engine using neural networks and uh, singular value decomposition. I At that time it was not really called AI, it was just called machine learning only and uh, I didn't realize this was an important thing until uh, Google started their search engine and I realized, oops, what did I do? So so my journey was in AI was more by an accident, uh, though I've uh, really had fun since then.
2: Uh, for myself, um, I'm a patent attorney, and so typically it's all dependent upon uh, the company I work for and what technologies they're working on and what the inventors for the company are creating. And in the last four years, the company that I work for do a lot of work for. Uh, they've focused on AI and of course neural networks, whether it's from uh, consumer products or f- particular functionalities or for the actual internal operation neural networks. So actually for mine, I've actually only been working on them for a few years, but it's in my responsibility at our law firm, it's to make sure that all the other associates understand the technology. So. I've really had to ramp up and understand this technology substantially more than maybe someone usually would have had to in a short period of time. That's awesome. Uh, So can you talk to me about what what you guys are doing today? Sure.
1: So, you know, I joined Unisys uh, about a year back. And uh, I think one of the things that excited me to join Unisys was there was a huge opportunity to transform uh, our technology products, our service platforms. And I thought AI would be a great enabling technology to do that, and so uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have a significant team of several thousand uh, engineers uh, all across the globe in sort of six delivery centers all over the globe, and uh, I've, uh, you know, had the opportunity. We were not doing any AI uh, in our products before I joined, but since then. We built a very strong competence, and we already now have two products that leverage AI. And uh, in another six months, we'll have three more. So we'll actually have uh, five products using AI. Uh, so it's uh, been an interesting journey. And prior to that, I was at Semantic, And Symantec and cybersecurity is a big user of AI, uh, because uh, cybersecurity is a difficult problem to solve otherwise. So. I've I've had a, you know interesting blushes with AI or or different uh, domains.
0: I think that actually leads me into my next question. So how how is AI and machine learning affecting cybersecurity today? So a lot of our audience, obviously, we have two and a half million users uh, across the world, um, largely in the cybersecurity and IT space. Um, how would you say it's improving operations detection, you know, uh, across the board?
1: You know, when you think about cybersecurity, you really have to think about the entire life cycle of cybersecurity, right from how do you detect, how do you protect, how do you predict, how do you plan. Uh, So, when you think about that entire life cycle of cybersecurity and you think about that for your entire digital landscape, which means you're thinking about, you know, things like cloud, you're thinking about your servers, you're thinking about your mobile devices your uh, desktops that you're using, uh, you can understand it's a very complex problem because, A, the IT landscape is is so complex and so uh, disaggregated, right? You've got all, all kinds of network devices. Things are connected. And uh, it's it's complex also because, you know, you've got now uh, NIST tracks the number of vulnerabilities. There are now up to 110,000. In fact, NIST is based in Maryland itself, right? And... Uh, Every employee has become a vulnerability itself because people's credentials can get easily stolen, uh, because people use the same credentials in consumer sites as they end up using within the company. And so this problem has become very complex, and this is the reason why uh, companies have started to apply, whether we think about the companies in the D.C. metro area, uh, and there's a number of cybersecurity companies uh, based here, or, or across the U.S. in general, um, they've started to apply AI in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the three three big ways that I have seen application of AI, both at semantic and at Unisys, has been, one, in the threat detection space. Because when you think about detecting a threat, uh, there is two things that you have to do. You have to map, you know, you have to sort of figure out is there an indicator of compromise, which means is there a certain malware signature that I can map to? And AI is very good at pattern recognition. So you don't have to have an exact match. It can match a particular pattern. And uh, that's what uh, typically unstructured learning does. The second piece that AI can be very good at where it is used is uh, detecting if there is something different going on. So a lot, because this problem space is so complex, one of the things that AI provides is called anomaly detection. And so the idea is if people start to, let's say you've got, an employee who has never accessed source code and suddenly starts accessing source code, so you know it's an anomaly. Uh, and maybe it's okay, but 99%, you know there's something perhaps fishy going on. And so AI is also very good at uh, you know figuring out what's normal, what's abnormal, and having that with a level of confidence. Uh, so these two areas are very common. The third area that AI is starting to get used a lot in cybersecurity is really around simplification. Uh, because cyber is, is very complex, uh, people end up even having cyber products but not deploying them in the right way, mm-hmm. not integrating them in the right way. So, for example, we recently added AI in our product called Stealth because we want the cyber product to almost tell the customer how they should be configuring them, how the policies should be, instead sort of the customer having the expertise to put those policies in. And so a combination of detecting the threat uh, of uh, being able to simplify the policies of being able to detect an abnormal behavior, and then finally also assisting the humans who are working in cybersecurity, who are the SOC analysts, uh, with a variety of, uh, you know, figuring out which things are important to go after versus which ones are not. So these three or four use cases are big for AI in
2: cybersecurity are they using um, AI much for just the straight automation? Because it's like if you detect a threat and then you wreck it, maybe it's interpreting that there might be a threat mm-hmm. or that it, something seems someone seems to be probing. Is there any automation going on right now with AI for that?
1: Yeah, so I think the, actually that's a great question. Uh, thanks for asking that. So there is a big field in cyber called SOAR, uh, Security Operations and Orchestration and Response. And uh, what's so intense this is one of the companies that Palo Alto had recently bought called Demisto, for almost 450 million. And what's SOAR intense is to really uh, integrate a lot of these pieces together, so that way you can orchestrate a response. In the past, they have been silos. And so where AI comes to play is, you know you could do automation even without AI, but where AI comes to in play is intelligent automation. So you, instead of saying always if something happens, this is the thing to do, uh, AI can help things be a little more unstructured. So it can almost recommend kind of what to do and almost do it for you. So you can set up very interesting rules that can help AI, you know, automatically say if you detect this pattern, you know, maybe you should download this type of software and close these ports, or perhaps isolate this user. Uh, so these are definitely some very upcoming uh, examples of uh, AI, where it's getting used mixed by RPA, which is robotic process automation, together with pattern recognition to do what AI can do, is which is intelligent automation.
0: Very interesting. Um, what would you say the, the kind of the critical skills are for people in, in AI, machine learning nowadays, um, and how have those changed over the years, um, and how do you think they're going to change in the future?
1: I've actually seen a lot of change in terms of skill sets for AI because in the past, everything was based on very uh, people really knowing mathematics to a very large extent. And I think if you want to be a data scientist, that's still an important thing because you need to know the algorithms. But what cloud has done, so if you think about uh, Google with TensorFlow, uh, Azure uh, with all of the AI capabilities they've brought on, AWS with SageMaker, Uh, These companies have democratized the use of AI. They have made the use of AI much more simpler, where people who don't have that PhD, who don't have that deep maths background, can still figure out based upon identifying the business use case, which is the right uh, problem to attack. And then the tools will recommend the type of algorithms to apply. And uh, they will obviously leverage the data that the company will have. And sometimes they can even add some synthetic data to it. And so I think uh, if you look at the skill set that you need today for AI, it's uh, definitely you do need some level of programming like a Python. You need some level of math. So that way you don't need a deep math background, but you need some level of math background. But then you, what I find people to be most useful is when they can understand those business use cases. They can say, okay, does this problem fit in AI, number one? Number two, which algorithm type of problem it is? And so I think uh, that is causing much widespread use of AI, where now it's becoming almost like a de facto in every product, versus having to be
2: something that's very, very specialized. Do you find that helpful to have like a specialized uh, employee base for the determination of the data, or what data to collect uh, for the AI? Or
1: yeah, so I think maybe one of the things that companies can do, and we tried doing this at Unisys, is. I wanted all my engineers to have what I would call as a level one type of understanding of AI because I want all engineers to know: Do I have a use case where AI might be useful? Uh, so I want them to know the lingo. I want them to know, you know, hey, when is when should I be using uh, classification types of things versus neural networks? When uh, you know, what type of problem statements would there be? What type of data sets do I need? And then I think you need a small set of data scientists who are very specialized, uh, but they themselves are really needed just to build that machine learning model and not necessarily do the, all the programming. Your developers can still do the programming. And so I think a combination approach where you have a people who have a broader set of knowledge uh, and then a narrower set of people who have very deep knowledge in actually saying, is this model valid? Right? Is the is the error rate okay? Right? Is it worth using this model, or am I just fooling myself? Uh, that I think is a good approach of bringing two sets of talents together, and that way you have a much more scalable model. The other approach may also be that uh, now there's lots of specialized companies. The VCs have funded um, literally thousands of companies who have either taken a narrow Functional approach, they'll say, I will solve the problem for recruiting with AI. And then, so they can bring that expertise if you don't have it yourself. Does I guess that address it, your question?
2: Yeah, I guess like, one thing, and we had talked uh, maybe a couple, like a month ago, and we'd also talked maybe a little bit like small businesses mm-hmm. or small companies, the startups, and kind of like, I guess there was a concern versus large companies that have the capability to collect their data as it already exists, and just kind of collate it or to organize it and smaller companies that th- that are just starting out and collecting data. And I guess the conversation we kind of had was if you're a small company, you just keep collecting as much data as possible. And I guess, I mean, it's not my specialty in that this part of the AI, but it's, from my understanding, it's kind of also one of those things where it's be a little proactive and if you can, you essentially create the app or create the product that that if the people give the information, it improves the product, which also gives you more data, which maybe you can expand your data, and then later on you'll determine that you can do other products and so forth?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, if I think about, there's a lot of success we see with small technology companies. Now, how were they able to beat big companies like Symantec? For example, we recently saw CrowdStrike go to public, right? And this started from scratch. They were a startup. And just in one area, they have, you know, really excelled, which is uh, obviously the endpoint detection and response. And their market cap is now $14 billion. And so one of the very transformational things that cloud has done is if your platform is running on cloud, your ability to collect that data is much more easy, right? So instead of creating very sophisticated telemetry that we had to create in the past, that would kind of call home and send the data from where the customer is deployed. If you are an application that's being natively built on the cloud, it'll give you built in capabilities as the customer is using it to collect the data. And so I think uh, what is needed is even if you're a small company, as long as you educate your people about, hey, data is the new gold, this is the differentiation. Uh, we want to collect the data about every experience the customer has, about every employee experience, about, you know, because how do you differentiate now? You differentiate based on experience. You need great people, you want to give them a great experience. So you collect, you know, the, the data on the employees, you collect the data on the partners, on the customer. If these things are running on the cloud, then I think it gives you, irrespective of your scale, much easier way to collect and massage and analyze that data than you ever had before. So I feel uh, the, 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 the field has become much more level playing than before. Now, we have ourselves seen many cases where we didn't have the data. We had to recently create an AI project for border crossing. Uh, we didn't have the data for that particular country. So we had to take the data from another country. In this case, we took the data from U.S. because we had that data for many, many years to be able to predict for another country you know, what patterns might happen. So sometimes you can leverage a data from a different problem or a different region to predict. Uh, sometimes you can also do create synthetic data, meaning if you have certain patterns, you can uh, almost create the data, which we do in case of biometrics, mm-hmm. to almost predict, you know, because it's hard to buy 100 million biometric samples to train. So uh, there are, I think, many techniques. Uh, you still need data, but I think by leveraging public data sources, by leveraging cloud by leveraging, uh, you know, the ability to uh, uh, even use synthetic data, uh, perhaps data from other use cases. Uh, I think uh, the problem for smaller companies can be uh, is a very solvable problem, and we're already seeing uh, great success in AI by small technology companies. I think so one
2: thing interesting, like um, from in my field, is as AI becomes more prevalent, or not prevalent, but more like. Uh, it's spread out. There's more and more technologies, whether it's agriculture or whether it's robotics control systems, or you know, your face recognition or speech recognition or who knows or cybersecurity. It's as the underlying engineering and the technology understanding. For for example, automobiles, you still need to have sometimes. In, at least in my field, for a patent, or to someone that has the engineering background to understand how that AI fits in. And so it's kind of, it's like a little similar where you have the AI uh, person who you want him to know the basic level. It's kind of one of those things that we need to get my people to understand the basic level also for AI. So they understand when they get AI that it's unique in this situation and why it makes this application more special than just a plain old controller.
1: Yeah, I, I almost feel this AI discussion is a bit similar to you know, in ninety nine we used to say if you were not on the web, you would become irrelevant, right? And so nobody really knew how to use HTML, how to create a website or a domain name, all the things we take for granted, right? We feel like the world has moved. But right. that time that was a differentiator. So I feel like we're at that crossroads again, right? That hey, if you are not gonna be using AI, you're going to become irrelevant because to your point, it's actually has so many applications in in Anything you do, right, it can
2: use to make it simple, cheaper, and better. And it's also interesting because it's like we have data here. The concern a couple years ago was too many big companies have all the data. Or maybe one country has so much data so they're ahead of us. Um, it's Now there's this big advertisement of a push of 5G and IoT. And as we have more sensors and more data and essentially everything, maybe in five years, might be connectable to some type of wireless network. And as long as security is there, they will be able to share data. And so I wonder if there's going to be just there's gonna be substantially more public data in the future. And it will be now we have data, but now be the concern in the future will be, how do you use all the extra data around you? And you know, that's, it'll be like another I think that's a
1: great point. I think almost governments, just like in healthcare, will have some role to play. So, in the past, the government ended up creating a level playing field by saying, I'm going to have a, a bank that can lend to also poor people. So, I almost expect now governments, and the US does that to some extent, all countries don't do, they actually make available for free. Like, you can go to NIH and get any data source you want, provided you can show them why you need it. Right. They'll obviously give you in with, 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 with limited ways. So I do think uh, the point that you're raising is a very valid point that, you know, uh, the, this will be one of the areas where I think even the government can start to play a role to say, okay, uh, just like China is really trying to invest in to say, how can they be ahead of AI? As we think about US, as we think about some countries in Europe, right, where the government will create a set of data with a set of safeguards to make sure that their industry has a level playing field compared to other companies. Uh, so they can continue to innovate, continue to operate, at the same time protect the privacy of where the data came from. And I think we so were the going anonymization to anonymization I think will be important. I think
2: we were gonna talk a little bit about that I think you went to oh yeah that. yeah it sounds like the, the
0: the new world of ownership data is king right it's, it's gold right so we hear a lot about how to value data and information and how to utilize it in different ways but really it's like how to secure it and so what we hear from a lot of companies nowadays is they're trying to uh, enable their entire enterprise to secure their data right um, as well as utilize it so could you could you guys talk a little bit about that how you're how your companies are securing your data um, and and be, uh, enabling your companies to be able to utilize it? So, you know, when you think about data, there's three
1: things you have to think about. One, uh, you have to think about how do you encrypt the data that a particular device or a machine has. It's That's typically called uh, data at rest. Mm-hmm. And it's around encrypting it so that way if somebody breaks into the device, the data does not get lost, right? As we know... Uh, Companies like Equifax perhaps didn't do that as much, so that way all the data got out. Uh, The second thing you have to do is to encrypt data in motion. So that way, uh, as the data is getting transmitted between the company and the cloud, between different parts of the company, company and a supplier, if somebody gets a man in the middle attack, you don't want the data to be compromised. And so, if that data is encrypted with the right type of encryption that people can break, typically like a 256-bit AES, then that itself is a second fact. The third thing you have to think about is data classification. So if you think about requirements like GDPR, right, if the data is a sensitive data, which can identify a person, it's called private data in the US, then you can actually get a fine of 4% of revenue or 20 million, whatever is more. And so you need to know if you're not going to, some companies can say, I'm going to encrypt everything, but that can slow things down. Sure. So instead, you can say, okay, if I have a data classification, I'll know if this data is sensitive. If the data is sensitive, I'll encrypt it both at rest and in motion. I'll make sure that this data is protected. If the data has private healthcare information and credit card information, can be used to personally identify somebody, we're going to provide special treatment to it uh, through these types of means, not just in terms of encryption, but where it can be forwarded. That area is also called data loss prevention in the industry, DLP. So uh, so I think given we all know data is the king, uh, there is now a lot of focus around encrypting it, around protecting it, around classifying it, around ensuring that it passes the different privacy hurdles so that we're both from a reputational and uh, uh, a regulatory
2: perspective, you're not exposed. I guess my perspective is also from Uh, maybe a small business and you have large corporations and they'll have uh, well thought out procedures and even a small company can have well thought out procedures but a large company may have more capabilities to implement them and uh, protect themselves and whereas sometimes the smaller companies they try they do their best and it's it's interesting that it's on a different scale so it's like whereas a small company a small business might have just an IT specialist that IT specialist might also it might he might have a, a backbone of help, but it's you know it's interesting because it's the, the level of protection sometimes is different because we try to protect and essentially for for us we have clients' data and we really have to protect it because it's IP rights and it's it's patent information mm-hmm. and some things have not been filed in the United States or they have have not been filed somewhere else before. And so we have to keep it secret, but it is, is, there's a balance also where we need to make sure employees can do their work. And right. so just like, you know, I take, I have a little iPad here. I'm trying to convert over to the digital world and try to kill less trees. But the, there's an issue where I'm taking this around and while it requires face recognition, it does have data and it does right. have access to my work email. Right. You know, it does have... You know, my goal would be to be able to VPN in Mm -hmm. to work. But that would also mean with a couple clicks, someone can immediately get into our system. But, you know, hopefully there's protections upon protection. And so it's one of the skills, it's one of the issues where it's interesting for a small company.
1: I think that's a great point. So I think there is two things I would say about it. One is, uh, as you pointed out, I thought your example about uh, how it has face recognition is very key. Uh, because we know normal name password credentials can be compromised very easily. Yeah. And so I think there is going to be a big move towards biometrics because we also can't keep on changing our password every six weeks, right? We're all sick and tired of trying to change these passwords, put all types of special characters, we forget everything, and then we try to make it the same in every site, and one of them gets compromised, and now we're un- more unsafe than before. Uh, so we need to bridge this gap between you know, security and convenience. We need both. And that's where I think biometrics can play a big role. I think the second thing is that, uh, you know, the bar is actually lower for small businesses because the governments realize that they don't have all the resources. And that's why if you look at the GDPR fines, uh, you know, Facebook is getting a fine of $5 billion, but a small guy is not getting that fine uh, because they know that, uh, you know, it's going to be on a best effort basis. Now going back to my cloud theme, The nice thing is now a lot of these technologies are available through cloud. And so when you're buying, say, you know, you're working on Office 365, Microsoft is enabling some version of DLP by default for you uh, just on the basic thing that you've bought. And so if you simply turn it on, you don't have to pay any money extra. At least you have some level of protection. A bigger company can obviously do much more, and they do. But I think even the small person now has a much better level playing field than they ever had before in this cloud and 5G
2: era. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, like the the board-level field, because I think there was, a, at some point in time, there's a concern of fairness, or fairness in competition, where you have this huge company that has so much resources and has had so many years to create this data that's so proprietary. And they have so many sources for data. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, that... As I was reading, sometimes it seems like the policymakers are almost behind the times a little bit, where you hear about a new policy of trying to level the field, maybe in this area, when you start hearing about the fact that there's more data sources that are equally valuable or that are public. And so it's it's interesting that the, the fair competition issue, it may be become more minimized and less of a burden on an upstart company to compete with a large company.
1: I think so. I think you know now you're seeing more small businesses are the ones that's coming up. And if you look at the number of Fortune 500 companies, a lot of change happening, right? Since 2000, uh, I was reading a statistic that said almost 40 percent of Fortune 500 companies that were then 2000 versus now have you know almost 40 percent of them have gone through either M&A or you know simply shut down like a Xerox or a Nortel. So uh, certainly, I think there is a lot of pressure on both sides, but we do think. Uh, more small businesses are getting started than ever before. So, I think the uh, you know certainly there is some benefits that come with size, but also there's some disadvantages that come with size as well.
2: And also, one thing that's interesting about that, I didn't really think about it, but I was reading that before we came here today. And one of the uh, concerns about the data is that you have large companies merging with large companies. We used to just think about. The you know the competitive benefit they'll have in the marketplace, or the products, or the, the logistics will be cheaper for them. You know, but now it's kind of potentially what proprietary data does this company have that, when merged with that proprietary data, all of a sudden makes a behemoth.
1: I think that's a great point, right? Uh, now instead of just thinking about product overlap and customer overlap and region overlap, uh, regulators will need to think about you know data overlap and you know this. Do you have too much of an unfair monopoly or advantage uh, with one? The other thing I want to mention is uh, the other move I'm seeing in the industry is you know people are realizing that if a malware comes in or say they're infected by a ransomware, that they need to keep some kind of a backup of the crown jewels. They can't necessarily back up every single thing, but they need to back up you know, what they believe are the crown jewels, which they don't want to get uh, impacted by this ransomware. And so for example these companies like EMC have something called a cyber recovery vault and uh, you know so people are starting to almost like we used to have a vault where you would put all your valuables now you have a cyber recovery vault where you put all your really really wow. critical data that if you know you shut down and you have to reboot every server and destroy everything you have something to start with but now the hackers are so smart they go after the cyber recovery type of things as well which is where now we're trying to secure that using, you know, our technology, which is called Stealth. So it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game, right? Uh, yeah. We're always trying to be ahead and the hackers get ahead. And then we try to take two more
2: steps. It's it's very it's interesting. A, it's also funny because it's like if you go way, way back in the day with tape drives.
1: That's right. That's you know, what
2: that is. Essentially, they would take the tape drives out and then ship them off to or take it to another company. who would Iron put Mountain, it, that's how Iron Mountain got Yeah, they put start. it underground or put in some cave or whatever, some dry storage, you know.
0: Yeah. Or, As a part of that, like, uh, I mean, that protection of the data, making sure that you store it in the right places, making sure that you double it, right, uh, and encrypt it. Um, We've been working with a number of companies that build sophisticated products. Uh, One of the big problems that we see in product design is security tends to come at the end of the process rather than during the process. And it's largely because there's this, like, security team out there that kind of looks at the product at the very end rather than... Is, it, is something that is infused in the, in the actual uh, team itself. So can you talk a little bit about how, when you're thinking about products, and, uh, um, how security is infused throughout it?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, that's a great question, Leaf. So, uh, you know, there's two movements that are happening. One is called secure by design, and also privacy by design, because the same problem on security is also happening with privacy where people would design the website that would take all kinds of information. And then you say, why do you really need that information? And how long are you going to keep it for? Mm -hmm. And so these two things, uh, what companies are trying to do is as they build products, uh, they're trying to infuse these principles right at the design stage in terms of how do you build secure by design and privacy by design. That's one movement that's happening. The challenge is, even if you do these two principles, you know. If I look at a company like a Netflix or one of the Silicon Valley companies, right, they're going from once-a-year release to a once-a-quarter release to once-a-month release to non-multiple releases within a single day. And so if you take a traditional mindset of saying, you know, I'm going to create a product, then I send the ball to the security team, the security team spends a couple of weeks, and then they come back and say, you need to fix these six things. That model can't work if you have to do a release every day or even once a month. And so there is a new movement in the industry and it's called DevSecOps. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind DevSecOps is your development. In the past, you had three teams. Developers who would develop. Then you had the guys, they would say, okay, here is the code. You guys run and operate it. And then there was a team security team that you had to go before they could operate it to say, hey, do I have vulnerabilities? Now they're bringing all of these three teams together because they're trying to drive a lot of automation a lot of tooling to say, you know, are things that I'm going to deploy as microservices, as containers, are they really secure by design? Or can I check out the boxes? So instead of always going to security team and saying, hey, can I get your permission? Security team has said, these are my set of principles. You codify these principles as automated scripts. So that way, right when you're going to be deploying things, they get automatically checked. If they're a problem, you can go and build it. If they're cleared out, then you can go and, you know, get your releases deployed. So it's very interesting how this field has sort of, you know, evolved from not thinking about security, to thinking about security by design, to not thinking about true
2: DevSecOps. Like for us, you know, it's it's interesting because it's a small, it's very small, we're a boutique and maybe like about 20 attorneys and a limited staff, but it's still kind of, we still have to have our IT people remind everyone. You don't click on things, right. you know, or worst case scenario, if you have to open something, take your phone out, open it on your phone. Mm-hmm. If you have to destroy They want your phone f- to be infected before the machine gets yeah. infected. Yeah, you know, if your phone is destroyed, we can replace it. Yeah. You know, and it's that kind of thing. But it's, you know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because we still have to do it from that perspective. It's like the old school, but it's we still have to.
1: Yeah. No, that's true, right? I think uh, studies show that people love to click. Despite educating them as much as you want, uh, there is some innate human curiosity that is there that makes them think that either they want something or somebody has sent something really important for them. And, uh, you know, this area is obviously called phishing and people love to click. And so one of the interesting technologies uh, that I've seen is called isolation browser. And the idea is that instead of that click that you do, which runs on your machine either on your phone or on your machine, and ends up infecting that machine? What if it ran outside your machine in an isolated cloud? And that way, it could only infect that VM. Mm. So almost, you know, uh, outsource that whole concept of where the thing runs, because if it runs and ends up infecting, now it's something infected that we don't care about. And so this has become one of the other interesting technologies that people are adopting in a number of areas to say, okay, can I just, you know... uh, you know, since people, no matter how much education
2: campaign I run, they just keep on clicking. Yeah. Can I find a different way to address this problem? I think interesting thing about phishing is kind of maybe it's like for small companies sometimes and they're dealing with other small companies. And sometimes it's whether it's someone who spends a lot of time figuring out how to do it or they have some maybe an AI that's now better at it. They collect enough information to impersonate the other party. It's one of those things where you're like all of a sudden it's like man in the middle, but it's like all of a sudden someone nowadays electronically can mimic mm-hmm. that they are someone and then potentially mimic.
1: Yeah, people think the email list from so and so, right? Only if you actually look at the email and see the actual email address can you tell. Otherwise it will say, oh, it's from Apple or it's from Microsoft and it looks very official. Right. So people have become very, very good, or the hackers have become
2: very good at impersonating. And I've actually emails. seen somewhere or heard of somewhere, like they also send like a fax, or they'll send in a letter, or they'll send something to inform the law firm that they've changed their email, or that they've yeah. that they're having some technical difficulties. And so from this point on, they're going to use the exact same name with .net or mm-hmm. this name with .something that that seems perfectly legit, <laughs> that you would have gotten another time. And it's one of those things that you're kind of more like, it depends on, it's, you have to also educate your, you know, workforce because all of a sudden if someone just sees that and starts sending letters or emails to that account, you know, next thing you know, you're getting, it's more than just emails. It's, you know, it's
1: it's other information. Yeah, people have become very sophisticated at, uh. Uh, you know, this is
0: called, you know, spear phishing and
1: the, it's, all kinds of things go on.
0: Yeah, we have a great course on it if you guys want to <laughs> check it out. Thanks I miss the, plug. I missed I the I old days, it. like fax machines. How about yeah. those? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, g- given all these, these threats in, uh, out there, like how do you maintain privacy in this new world? Like like what can we do to protect ourselves?
1: I think uh, there are some common sense things you can do and there are some things that the, the, the company, you know, whether it's big or small, will need to do. So I think as an individual, uh, what you can do is, you know, people care about, you know, we recently released, as you something called the security index. Yeah, it showed that uh, people have a lot of fear for their identity. They care about their identity being stolen even more than they think the fear of the terrorist attack might be, just because I think that has been countered much better over the last uh, maybe 20 years or so. And so I think uh, what people can do is, one, Obviously, you know, have the hygiene in terms of uh, making sure that, uh, uh, you know, they're checking somebody using their credit or something like that, right? They have some level, like now a lot of sites let you monitor your credit or your credit score. So suddenly they see somebody applying credit for them. They know if there's something going on. That's what they could do for their identity. Uh, for the machines, you know, they have to make sure they keep on with the latest updates. Like right. If you have a Mac, it'll tell you when a latest update is there. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the past, people would ignore it, but now these updates end up fixing what's called patches, right? End up fixing a lot of security vulnerabilities. And so whether it's your phone or your machine, you want to make sure, whether using Android or or Apple, that you really are taking advantage of the new releases. And that way, you know, you're doing things that at least you can control. The third thing you can do is to, even as an individual, back up your data, right? Uh, This would seem like, very non-trivial, but even though Cloud ends up backing some level of data, it's always possible that your machine may get infected, they may have to re-image it, and you might lose a significant part of the data. And, you know, these days storage is cheap. And so as an individual, these are very simple things you could do. And the fourth thing, obviously, is your credential, right, in terms of whether if your machine allows you the biometrics, which now Windows allows, Mac allows, can you, you know, can you leverage it? Can you leverage, uh, you know, not have the same name password every place? Uh, that's what the individuals can do. Now, at a company level, what the company can do is, uh, you know, there is a trend in the industry that's called zero trust. And the Mm -hmm. thought is that, you know, in the past, we built a perimeter, whoever was within the perimeter, we trusted, and we gave them access to everything. And clearly, it's so easy to get for people, hackers to come in, that that model doesn't make sense. And so zero trust says, even if you're in or you're out, we don't have any trust in you. You have to validate yourself every time you want to do anything interesting. And so the so that's where, you know, when you see, if you go to a banking site, you will see that if you are, you know, you may be able to see a balance, but if you're trying to do any transaction, it'll say, I sent you an SMS code, type that in, right? So whether you use it through a second factor authentication like that, or you, you ultimately use biometrics, which will be more convenient, uh, you know, companies have to adopt sort of a zero trust approach. The other thing companies can do is zero trust says, if you already get breached, somebody will come in. How do you minimize the impact of that breach? And so I think there's a lot of companies who want to invest not just in the protection technology, which is what people did in the past, but in what we would call as isolation technology. So right. that says that very quickly, as quickly if you detect something is wrong, can you isolate that thing in 30 seconds or less? Because if you can isolate it, it will not become the source of infection for everything. Because what happens is as soon as somebody clicks on a link and a malware comes first their machine gets infected then the machine becomes a source for infection for that infection to spread through the whole enterprise so if you can stop it right in that one place you can detect it fast and st- isolate it then it will not spread right so it will become a non-event uh, so I think these things which both the individual can do and then the company can do with a zero trust approach and things like dynamic isolation multi factor authentication I think can go a long ways in solving what is a very complex problem
2: now what kind of difference in products i mean for an enterprise it's their capability to implement some enterprise level product versus maybe a company of say 500 employees or mm-hmm. a company of maybe 75 are there different types of products out there that would have provide like potentially like the something that isolation type
1: Yeah, so I mean, just to maybe plug in our own product, uh, so we make something called Stealth. uh, You know, and the idea is that, you know, can you, through micro-segmentation, first make sure that you can only access what makes the most sense? Right. And then through dynamic isolation, we can isolate you to make sure that if you somehow still get infected for whatever reason, you don't become the source of infection for everybody else. And so I think what you want to do, whether you're a small or a large company, is to buy these things, you know, as a software, not as a hardware, because that's much more flexible, and then buy it as a subscription. So that way, if it's effective, you can use it, pay for it, but you don't have to incur a lot of cost one time and then realize it's not useful. And I think the third thing that they can look at is integration, that, you know, you want things that integrate and work well together, right? Even though they may be coming from many different companies, because then you want ultimately a security outcome, right? right? Not just these things doing just their bit.
0: Um, so if you were going to say, like, what skill sets people need to build, especially in IT, uh, uh, what security skill sets in specific to, to protect, uh, what would you see, say those would be?
2: As AI moves along and AI becomes across many different technologies, cybersecurity will have to follow. It's, you'll have to have some type of level for your nanny cam. You're gonna have some type of protection for, every, for a controller, you know, in an electric power plant. You're going to have anything that has an AI will have to have some type of a level of protection. And so it may be at some point in time, a little similar where in my field that it, while we, we've done a lot of education internal to make sure everyone understands the AI we're working on or the neural networks and how they work, how they could be used it's going to be something similar to, you know, they need to understand whether if they're working in automotive, whether working in, you know, controls or wherever, that that they may need to understand a little bit more so about the, how the cybersecurity is going to interact with that controller or that processor and also with the AI and also with the 5G and also, you know, so it's kind of like all these disciplines, they still have to learn at a certain level, like a minimum level, like your engineers. So that while they understand how the nuts and bolts work, and they understand how, you know, the switching goes on, they also understand how it war- interacts with the rest of the world. That's, that's what I see my future goal. So, like right now, I'm I'm kind of making sure everyone understands. As a new AI comes out, we get a new technology in a case that I teach everyone, or I make sure everyone k- gets up to speed, and that we can handle the work that we're working on, and we can do more. Um, it's also something that I have to think about like that, where as I see cybersecurity or if I start see, if we start focusing more on IoT, that's, I think that's a bigger issue for us. Maybe in, right. the, in the US sometimes is, can a, can a company overseas use that device without our control? And so it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective where it's an engineering almost inventor level, but it's more of an engineer level that I deal with.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great uh, set of recommendation. You know, so as I was reflecting on this question, you know, I thought, what is the, you know, there's two things going on, right? One, now we are in a mode where uh, in the past you graduated from college, you learned what you did and you applied that, right? Now these days you've sort of migrated to this continuous learning concept where the idea is that you want to really make half an hour available for yourself almost every day. To be able to pick up something new because uh, things are coming at you with such a fast pace like you described, yeah. right whether it's, it's about the average or job, by
0: the way uh, about a half hour yeah per user so oh okay yeah, so yeah, that's learning. So, so that's
1: kind of what we encourage also that because you know I mean you could certainly say spend a couple hours on a Friday but sometimes it's hard to learn all in one go so instead of taking one week complete learning and then nothing for 51 weeks uh, you're better off doing a little bit every day, so you kind of keep up to your what your passion is. Uh, what we did with our engineers is we thought I thought about this problem very deeply, and because there's so many things they could learn, and I said uh, there were five disciplines that we picked that we took everybody through about a three-year. In each of them, we took them through a three-year learning track, and those were because the world is a cloud-first, data-first world. So we took. We wanted everybody, no matter whether they were working in security or in building a healthcare application or something else, we wanted them to first learn a little bit about cloud because we thought all applications will eventually have to deal with cloud. We wanted them to learn a little bit about AI, not to become an expert at it, but to be able to spot the right use cases and to be able to have the right conversation with the data scientist. Then we thought about that any application will have a front end and a back end. So we wanted them to learn about modern UI, UX. So that way they get the experience for the end user is compelling because if the experience is not great, nobody will use that software. And we wanted them to learn a little bit about microservices because microservices is the new way that things can be very scalable, reusable. Uh, that way you can you know, build things once and use it many, many times. They become like Lego blocks instead of people everybody building their own thing. Uh, so we see a lot of reusability. So that's how I would approach it to say, you know, develop a set of foundational capabilities and then depending upon your area, you can specialize in one or two things.
2: Gotcha. And I think it's it's also something like in our field, it's like most of the people that uh, go into a patent field come from a certain, whether it's electrical or chemical mm-hmm. or civil or mechanical, and they expect to work in those type of fields. And so sometimes it's actually like getting people out of their comfort zone to understand to, to learn something that they aren't used to mm-hmm. and so it may be that some people yes they can't pick up the math and so if you get them a, a difficult paper they may not be able to, to really dig into it but it's it's one of the things that we have to kind of get people that are not disciplined in the field to all of a sudden understand it's something that is substantially different right. than what they've ever dealt with so like you know it may be that if they're dealing with automatic transmissions you know, they're not expecting some AI controller, and and so, but you kind of have to, you know, slowly encourage them how it's not that difficult.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you have to teach them, instead of a content, you have to teach them the art of learning.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. That's
1: all- it's probably the most important it's, it's almost uh, actually it's like uh, elementary school now yeah. cuz like
2: there's there's some videos you can sit there on youtube and you get to watch the bouncing ball like tell you how the neural network works <laughs> you know and how the back propagation goes on it's just it's kind of funny
1: i've seen the similar type of ones for blockchain <laughs> <laughs> these ball videos are very
0: popular
2: <laughs> it's all of a sudden all of a sudden the math comes out you're like there oh, you wow. go
0: uh. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well. thanks, guys. I, I really appreciate you coming today. Uh, any any last words for our audience?
1: No, I think I would just leave people with uh, one thought, which is, you know, uh, I think we live in amazing times. I, I'm going to actually leave us on a note of optimism. Uh, you know, we we live in amazing times where technology, I think, is leveling the playing field. It's giving us incredible types of immersive experiences to play with. It's giving us more innovation than we've ever seen before. And so, my message would be to really embrace it head on, right? We could be afraid of technology or we can sort of join it and learn some of the skills and take advantage of it and and actually that way uh, make life more interesting. And so uh, I see the glass more half full.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it's, I try to always get people to think about, find something that you love. And it's kind of more like, even if you're working on something, I work on some stuff that is so mind numbing. But it's, I'm loving the fact that I've solved a problem or that I can succeed in understanding something and explain and I can argue something stronger. But it's kind of find something in this. And I think in this, all these various technologies, there's so much technology, so much new stuff. There's so much to be so interested in, Mm -hmm. you know, that I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I would keep yourself you know, options open and find something that really interests you. And you'd be amazed, like how well, more well you'll do at it. Fantastic advice. Really appreciate you joining today.
0: Thank you, Leif. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry podcast and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.